0: Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to Lessons Given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. You may be seated. And good morning, church. It is good to to see everyone. Uh, It's just been a blessing to to be with the body uh, so far this this morning, thank you, Dan and, and Bob and uh, Rich and Nate and Mike and, and everybody that's that's played a part in that. It's uh, it's good to be reminded that it's it's important for us to be with God's people and that this is a a really valuable part of of our rhythm uh, each week. Uh, I'm going to call a little bit of an audible here for some housekeeping announcements. Uh, this morning, I saw uh, Cheryl, Aston, and somewhere I saw Bob and Debbie. Bob and Debbie wave it. Hey, Bob and Debbie. So the Knowles are here with us. The Astons are here with us. And and I realized we we uh, never really highlighted this group. So we had we had a good number of uh, families move uh, in, in the year or so that, that we were not meeting in person. And having Cheryl here and having the Knowles here uh, back with us, I, I think for or not, not for you, but for them, I think for the first time on a Sunday, just reminded me of, of these families and, and how much we miss them and, and how much we valued our time for many years. So I wanted to read, I had a list for, from several months ago, it's probably not perfect, but these are some of the families that just moved out of state uh, during, during the time that we, we were not uh, meeting regularly. Uh, so Cheryl uh, over in Illinois, I think you stayed the closest, so which is why you've been here the most, that so works. Uh Stuart and John Lee and Rosalie to Jump uh, were not with us for long, but made a great impact in the time they were here. They're, they're in Florida. Uh, John and Carol Haynes moved to Memphis. Uh, Bob and, and Debbie, who are here with us, also moved to Tennessee. Uh, Brett and Alicia Taylor uh, moved to the magnificent Mile in downtown Chicago, uh, Illinois. Uh, Noah Cade and Katie Watson moved back to Arkansas and Barry and Crystal and Chloe Wilson uh, moved to Virginia. And so I was just thinking about that group this morning, uh, having seen Cheryl and, and the Knowles, and I was thinking about memories that we share with all of those families in the way that as we gather, really for all the parts of our service, but especially for communion, we remain tied to these families that were once a part of this body in the sense that we gathered every week with them, but now they're scattered over a bunch of states and uh, I'm just thankful for those families and, and what they meant for us. So let's let's go to God in prayer and, and and pray for these families that God will continue to be working in their lives. Let's pray. God, we're we're mindful this morning of of your church, the church that was that was bought at at a price uh, with the blood of your Son Jesus, and we're we're mindful of the way that this church is so much bigger than. The, the folks in this room or, or the folks in this city, God, but that we're connected to Christians back through the ages and, and we're connected to Christians, people who, who follow your son Jesus scattered all over the world. And so this morning, I want to ask a special prayer for, for some of the families that, uh, that did belong to this specific family, God, that, that continued to be in our Christian family, but who are no longer worshiping with us regularly, God. We, we ask a, a blessing for the Astons and for the Jumps, and for the Hanes, and for the Knowles, and the Taylors, and the Watsons, and the Wilsons. And I pray that, that each of those brothers and sisters of ours who we love are, are doing well, God, that, that your spirit is continuing to guide them, and that you will uh, bring them back to us at different points at, as you can, as you have this morning uh, with the Astons and with the Knowles. God, be with us this morning as, as we study your word. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. And then the other housekeeping thing I I wanted to mention is is that this morning was the the little neighborhood uh, 5K that I had mentioned uh, uh, several weeks ago. Uh, We had about a dozen people from Lafayette out there uh, running and walking. And we had Anna Weaver, who is like the most intense runner and walker. She actually wasn't doing it, but she was in her front yard going crazy with her dog. Uh, So Anna Weaver was the main cheerleader. And I believe uh, little Campbell Noyes who did it in a stroller was the youngest participant. So that was pretty cool. And then uh, Barb Schreier told me she decided not to show up uh, but it was just because she didn't want everyone else to feel bad. <laughs> uh, so we had all ages, walkers, runners. And again, the idea behind this was, was really not to get a huge group out there or anything. It was just a, a small reminder based from this series, that we are the church and, and God is continuing to work through us at this stage in our history. And so where we go, God's spirit goes goes with us. And so that's the case with a neighborhood prayer walk or something like this, or in our regular ministries, our, our life here at Lafayette as as we go about. And, and this was just a, a small way to be reminded. So congrats, congratulations to Campbell and, uh, and thank you, Barb, for, for not showing up because uh, we didn't need that. So uh, all right, so we are are now in our, our next last episode of, of this Into the Neighborhood uh, series. You can, you can see this schedule that you've, you've seen a bunch of times now. And this is a, a really important episode in this retelling of the biblical story because it is the episode in which we most presently find ourselves. So this is our episode. If you think about it, in those first nine Uh, episodes, we were really looking back into the story. These are still very relevant, these characters, these events, uh, everything that transpired that we've looked at in these texts, still very relevant, but the people of God in those episodes were theoretically behind where where we presently are today in this story. And then next week, we're going to be looking forward as we wrap up the story, and we anticipate the final time, the ultimate time that God's going to come Uh, back down into the neighborhood at Christ's second coming. But really this episode, week 10, episode 10 of 11, is our episode. This is where we find ourselves in the story, and it revolves around what it means that the Holy Spirit now dwells within us as individuals and as a collective body. So I was telling Lacey this week that I feel like it's still fairly common to hear church folks say that, that we that we never talk about the Holy Spirit or that, that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit a lot, which definitely used to be true. And, and I, I've made that very comment before, but I think it's been a while since that's, that's really been the case. I feel like uh, at, at Lafayette and at most of our sister churches, it's been uh, many years now that we've talked and taught consistently about the work of the Holy Spirit. But if you are one of those people who think we never do it, Or that we don't do it enough, then then you should get your fill this week as we're going to be looking at the work of the Spirit based out of Romans chapter 8, which you may have already noticed while Bob read it, is not exactly light reading. (laughs) So you you should have ample opportunity this morning to to dig deep in what it means that the Spirit of God lives within us today. So it's been almost 2,000 years uh, that that Paul originally wrote these words in Romans 8. But as Paul and the Roman Christians wrestle with the Holy Spirit's presence in their life, we can just about perfectly identify with where they're at in the story. This is still kind of the the same basic stage that we're in, the presence of the the Holy Spirit living within us, awaiting a a future day where Jesus will one day come again. So it's the same basic point uh, in the story. And so our goal this morning in focusing on the experiences of Paul and the Romans as they wrestle with the Spirit's presence in their life is really finally to focus on ourselves, to place ourselves in this story, to say what is what is our experience in this ancient story that continues to be told, to not just look back on how God has moved historically in different ways and in far off times and places, but to key in on how God is continuing to act and to live among his people in this place in this time, and so open up to Romans chapter eight again. This is a, this is pretty pretty dense uh, reading. And Romans eight, like John one, is is very likely some of your favorite chapters in the Bible. This is is definitely a highlight chapter, and you probably know that that Romans as a whole has a much bigger sort of overall train of thought that that Paul develops over sixteen chapters. Uh, You may know that Romans 6 to 8 is a cohesive unit where those ideas fit together, and then even within chapter 8, there are a few different parts where Paul is continuing to to build this really fine argument, but we're going to try to zoom in mostly on verses 18 to 30. We'll read a little bit uh, at the end of of the rest of the chapter. We're going to focus on 18 to 30 because we have 25 minutes and not multiple years. Uh, So in chapter 6, 7, and 8, Paul has mostly focused on some of the spiritual blessings that Christians already have uh, then. And and I would say that Christians still have and enjoy today through the work of Christ and then through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But in verse 18, you may have noticed this, he's going to pivot a little bit to address what what is kind of like an elephant in the room, which is that no matter how wonderful the Holy Spirit is, no matter how marvelous it is, that the Spirit of Christ now lives within God's people and ensures that we are children of God, that there still remains a missing piece, that creation still groans for more, and then later in the text, that we, as Christians, still groan for even more. So let's pick up in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So right off the bat, he's recognizing, Paul's recognizing that there are present sufferings, that just because the people then had the Holy Spirit, just because we have the Holy Spirit, that God's people are still going to face suffering. As sort of, to to Nate's point, a lot of these uh, things we've had mentioned this morning begin to fit together here. Verse 19, for the creation waits... In eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Don't ask me what that means. I don't know. Uh, verse 20 for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. So Paul's focus in these first 4 or 5 verses so far is is actually not on us quite yet. He's getting there, but he's he's not talking about human creation yet. He's establishing a parallel by talking about the rest of creation. Nature, you know, non Non human creation. That, like us humans, the rest of creation also suffered and decayed and was subjected after the events of the garden, is what I think he's talking about. And that, like us humans, all of creation is also waiting with hope for future freedom and glory. Now, that focus on the non human creation is super interesting, at least to me. That's, this is something we skip over quite a bit, and we're actually going to skip over it again this week. Uh, it'll, it'll be a little bit more relevant to us next week when we look at the new heaven and new earth and the renewal of all things, not just, uh, not just ourselves. But again, we, ha- we have to press on because what Paul's really doing, he's establishing a parallel with the rest of creation so that he can talk to us about us. So he continues in verse 23, this is easy to see, Not only so, so not only is that all true with the rest of creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So these couple verses here are going to be the key for us this morning, hopefully at least. Uh, Paul has established this parallel with the rest of creation, how the rest of creation is groaning and is in need of redemption, and and now he says not only that, but we ourselves, we humans, also experience decay and bondage after the garden, and we also are in need of redemption. And it's a pretty easy thing there to to see the comparison. But here's the catch, because in one sense, Christians have experienced redemption. In fact, Paul has spent about seven and a half chapters arguing that Christians have experienced redemption. That's much of what he's talking about, that Christians, through the work of Christ, through the work of the spirit have already been redeemed and yet here he's saying that in another sense Christians still await they they look forward to future redemption and so that's the redemption well let's talk about the adoption if you look back in verse 15 if you look at the language Paul says that the spirit has already brought about their adoption to sonship it's sealed we have been adopted as sons as children of god and yet here Paul says that they are still waiting for their adoption. And so how can both things be true? How can the Roman Christians and the Lafayette Christians I'm looking at be already redeemed and adopted and saved, and yet also be waiting and and groaning for their adoption and their redemption and their salvation? And this is typically where preachers, uh, including myself just a couple months ago, will introduce this uh, this phrase of already, but, but not yet. we have We've talked about this at Lafayette, that God has already brought into reality many spiritual blessings through Christ, through the Spirit, and yet there are other blessings that have not yet come to fruition. And that is a very biblical idea. And it's a great phrase that makes sense of a chapter like Romans 8, where this is clearly how Paul is thinking. He's able to say on one hand, oh, this has already happened, but on another hand, this has not yet happened. But that phrase itself, already but not yet, is actually not in the Bible. That's just something we, we kind of made up. And there's actually a lot of phrases like that that actually aren't in the Bible, but, but just make good sense of kind of what the Bible talks about. But I, I think this passage, and we're going to have to work on it a little bit, but I think this passage has an exact phrase, an exact idea that teaches that exact same idea of of already, but not yet. And it's, it's in verse 23, which you should still be able to see this phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit. So I'm going to try to explain the meaning behind the idea of the first fruits of the Spirit. And I'll be honest, how it's used in this context took me a lot of time this week to kind of wrap my mind around and even more time to figure out how in the world to try to communicate it. So this could be a little bit tough, but we'll, we'll try to do our best because I think this is key to what Paul is trying to say here in the way that we've already experienced some things, but that we're already waiting or that we're still waiting for something. So the idea of first fruits, which Rich has already said that that word this morning, uh, the idea of first fruits in both the Old and the New Testament is used in, in several different ways. But generally, the idea is, is that the first fruits are the initial part of the later harvest still to come that they that these first fruits have already grown and so they can go ahead and and be picked and then used or consumed or given away or dedicated back to God they're the first fruits the initial fruits of the entire harvest so the bible uses the term first fruits to apply to a lot of di- in a lot of different agricultural settings so we have a phrase the first fruits of crops in general there's not a specific crop and then as we zoom in, there's mention of the first fruits of olive oil, of wheat, of wine, of honey, of wool, and of fruit. So there's a lot of agricultural mentions of the first fruit of those of those crops. And then it's even applied to livestock and to human children, which gets a little bit more abstract. But the idea would be like the firstborn child is, is the first, the first fruit of that family, or the, or the best, or the choice cattle would be the first, the first fruit that you could give back to God. Now, the main context when we're talking about first fruits, like with with Rich's offering talk uh, with the first set of brothers, is about how God has asked his people regularly, especially in the Old Testament, to dedicate or give back to God their first fruits. You know, give to God off the top, give him the first fruits, and so you can go on and enjoy the rest of the harvest. But that idea also kind of implicitly teaches, that this initial blessing, this initial crop, these very first fruits are a guarantee of more to come. That the very presence of a first fruit means the rest of the harvest is on the way. And if you think about it, that's why God can even ask his people to dedicate the first fruits back to him, because he's asking us to trust in him that, hey, if you give me these first fruits. You're trusting me that I will provide the rest of the harvest, that I will take care of you. The rest of the harvest is on the way. Uh, And so that's kind of the wider, especially in the Old Testament, that that is a few of the the, uh, interrelated ideas at work when it comes to first fruits. So let's go back to to Romans chapter 8, because we have this phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit, and it can mean a couple different things. But the consensus seems to suggest that Paul is, is invoking a lot of those ideas, but that more than anything, he is referring to the Holy Spirit itself as the, the first fruit of our spiritual blessings. That, that God's people have received the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God within us, as a first fruit, or see if these phrases sound familiar, as a deposit, as a guarantee, as a seal that there is still more to come. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the initial part. It's the first fruit of the entire harvest. And so we're to enjoy and relish and give thanks for this first fruit of the Holy Spirit. Or kind of the other idea would be the the Spirit gives all of these blessings and we're enjoying the the first fruits overall that the Spirit gives. So there's a few ways to, to look at it. But the the idea inherent with first fruits is that we're relishing and we're giving thanks for, we're enjoying this initial harvest, but it's a promise, it's a seal, it's a guarantee that the rest of the harvest is going to be on the way. So let's jump back into Romans 8, verse 23. Whether you're more confused or more enlightened, I have no clue, you can let me know later. Uh, But we read those same verses again, verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly, okay, that first fruit for the rest of the harvest, for our adoption to sonship, for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved, looking forward and backwards. In this future hope, we were already saved. But hope that is seen. Is no hope at all. Why do you have to hope for what you can see and, and who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And so this first fruit idea allows Paul, as he's done in most of Romans up to this point, to acknowledge and to give thanks and to, and to just praise God for what he has already done through the work of Jesus and what he is already now doing through the work of the Spirit, But the first fruit idea also allows him to talk about how God's people still yearn for even more, that they are still waiting for the rest of their spiritual harvest, that they groan inwardly for further adoption, further redemption, further freedom and glory and salvation, just like the rest of creation, that God's people still have to have hope. If everything in front of you, if you already have everything, if you can already see anything, there's there's no need to hope. And yet, we see consistently the Christian message requires hope that we're hoping for what is not yet fully seen, that we're hoping for what we don't yet fully have. And Paul says, We wait for this future hope, the rest of the spiritual harvest with patience. We wait patiently so let's keep going because it's going to, I think with that foundation, a lot of this is going to make more and more sense. And it gets even more practical here in verses 26 and uh, 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans or through groans too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So part of that already not yet tension, part of having the first fruits of the Spirit, but not the entire harvest, is that there is still groaning at this point in the story. And at times we remain weak because we do experience present sufferings as he mentions in verse 18 and in our weakness one of the practical ways that 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 ends up playing out is that in the spiritual life we don't always know what to pray for and 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 maybe sometimes we don't even know how to pray we don't even know what to say to God based on the situation that we're facing how how could we possibly put words to this experience on a grand scale or in our personal lives that we're facing we don't have words we're we're just groaning inwardly. We're at a loss for words, and yet one of the blessings we already have through the Holy Spirit already living within us is that the Spirit can now groan for us, and so earlier in the text when we first started and the word groan was mentioned, it was the creation that was groaning, and then in verse 23 it says that we were groaning, But now at this point here in verse 26, Paul can say that it's the Holy Spirit living within us doing the groaning. That the Holy Spirit is so in tune with our will and the will of God that he comes between us in our weakness as an intercessor before the Father. And he can groan for us with sighs, with groans that are too deep for words. And so there are moments in the spiritual life where you're at your wits end or that you don't know what you should pray for. You don't know how to pray or you don't know what you could possibly tell God to express the way that you're feeling in your lowercase s spirit. And and that is when the uppercase uh, s spirit comes in and does that work for you because God knows the mind of the spirit and because the spirit knows our minds. The Spirit can come between us and the Father as an intercessor, as someone who intervenes on behalf of God's people with God the Father. And so really, one of the things I I think we have to recognize from this text is, is that we still, even in episode 10 of 11, we still have groans at this point in the story. Not everything has been made well yet. Unfortunately, we still experience present sufferings. We haven't fully experienced the renewal of all things. But to me, if you're going to be in that situation, the Holy Spirit is a pretty amazing first fruit. That, that if all we get right now is the Holy Spirit living within us, interceding with us, comforting us, leading us further and further into the ways of Jesus, that that is a pretty amazing first fruit that we can already enjoy as believers. And so Paul is going to press on with this sort of basic thing established into verse 28, which which I would imagine is a favorite verse for, for some of you in this room. So with this confidence in the Spirit, Paul says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And I think we often miss something sneaky that Paul just did here in these verses, because we're busy arguing about predestination, (laughs) Uh, and you can take your predestination questions to one of the other many theologians at Lafayette. I don't want them, um, but did you notice that in our distraction with the, the P word, that Paul, right after establishing all this future tense, what God will do, that God went, or that, that Paul went right back into the past tense when, in these, these few verses here. That after he had just established that Christians still yearn for more, that they patiently wait with hope for future adoption and future redemption and future freedom and glory, that he then says, God foreknew his people. And God predestined his people. And those he predestined, he called, period, past tense. And those he called, he justified. And those he has justified, he has also, I think the implication is, he has already. Glorify. So, all of these amazing spiritual realities that Paul has just said we were waiting for, he's now proclaiming in the past tense as the experience of believers in Jesus Christ and in the Spirit. And so, the Holy Spirit may be just a first fruit, but because it is a promise, because it is a down payment, because it is a guarantee, because it is a seal, a Christian like Paul can can speak as if we have already been called and we've already been justified and we've already been glorified because it's as good as done. And so, yes, I don't think he's unbalanced here. Yes, we look forward into the story with yearning, with literal groaning sometimes for what is still to come. We wait with patience, we wait with expectation, with hope to the final episode In this story that we're going to tell next week, and there's no way, again, in 25 minutes that we'll we'll do it too much justice, but there is more to come in the story, and yet we also believe, and I I really think Paul believes this, that even at this point in the story, because of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, that God is already with us, that God is already living and dwelling within us, that God is already blessing us through what Christ has already accomplished and what he continues to accomplish through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's it's with that Holy Spirit inspired boldness and confidence that Paul, wherever you know whatever he was doing when he wrote this letter, that he could go on and write the rest of this chapter. I think everything we just work, we work through is the, the sort of theology and the sort of belief that he needed to pin, the rest of these chapters, which are some of the most beautiful words of hope and of faith in the entire Bible. So let's continue to read with Paul in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? I, I, just, I just love that question. He, he's laid it all out. He's about to make a transition in chapter 9. Right here just says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And so if the Father has already given us his Son, and if the Father has already sent us his Spirit, how can we not have the trust and the hope and the faith that God is going to go on and graciously give us everything else? He's given us his, his, his own very self already. Verse 33, and so who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father and is also, like we just discussed with the Holy Spirit, is also interceding for us. The the Son and the Spirit interceding for us with the Father. And so this enormous question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Can any of these things that the people of God had to experience then, even in their present sufferings, can any of those things keep them from Christ's love? Can any of those things that we continue to experience today keep us from christ's love can they keep us from not just receiving the first fruits of the holy spirit but of the entire harvest and i think in one word paul says a lot verse 37 he says no and i kind of wish the chapter ended right there paul says no because in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us And so I think that is where we're at in the story of God and, and God's people today. And so I don't I don't know why uh, it's I don't know why two thousand years later Christ hasn't returned. That that's a question I ask myself. That's a question a friend of mine asked me this week. I, I don't know why we're still almost two thousand years later, still groaning and and yearning and, and and waiting for more. And I wish that in our world today that we still didn't have to groan. Over the the trouble and the hardship and the persecution and the famine and the nakedness and the danger and the sword, that it sounds like God's people in ancient Rome were experiencing in the first century. And that I, I think God's people scattered around the world in Afghanistan and Haiti and the United States, other places, these realities that we still have to face today in our present sufferings. And yet, I believe that the spirit who lives within us, who has moved into the neighborhood of ourselves, intercedes for us in those very times of groaning and is even the one doing the groaning for us. And I believe that the Son, as Romans 8 also says, intercedes for us in our times of weakness, for he became weak that we might become strong. That that is why Jesus Christ has the authority to come before the Father and intercede for us. And I remain convinced, as it sounds like St. Paul was in his time and place, that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God that is shown to us most vividly, most clearly in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I believe that love is confirmed to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives day in and day out. This is a blessing, church. God is with us. God continues to move among us. Let's stand and sing. Dana and Donna will be back in the prayer room.